WDBM East Lansing. Welcome to The Sci-Files, an Impact 89 FM series focusing on student research here at Michigan State University. We're your co-hosts Chelsea Boudou and Daniel Puentes. This episode contains discussion about trauma, abuse, neglect, psychosis, and substance abuse that could be disturbing, triggering for some of our listeners. Many people have preconceived notions about what they think psychosis is. A lot of them think that it's just schizophrenia. However, it's a lot more than that. To tell us more about psychosis, we're here talking to Sam Behrens. Thanks for joining us today, Sam. May you please tell us about yourself and your research? Yeah, so I'll touch on the research that I've been doing at the University of New Mexico this summer. But who am I first? My name's Sam Behrens. I'm a rising junior at MSU, majoring in psychology and mathematics, and hoping to be a clinical psychologist someday. So psychosis is a broad term that covers a plethora of different symptoms and experiences and marked by changes in perception, beliefs, thoughts, and behaviors. My research studied the history of trauma in populations at clinical high risk for psychosis, but not yet experiencing psychosis. Nice to meet you, Sam. Similarly to how everybody has a health history that is associated with their profiles, you talked a little bit about how you studied their trauma history. Can you explain a little bit about what trauma history is? Yeah. So essentially, my study measures history of trauma by exploring patient exposure to 10 specific forms of trauma as measured through the Adverse Childhood Experiences Questionnaire. You might be familiar with it. Oprah Winfrey has been a huge advocate for the assessment and treatment of trauma in mental health settings. And the Adverse Childhood Experience Questionnaire, or the ACEs, refers to 10 specific ACEs of physical neglect, parental divorce, familial mental illness, familial substance abuse, domestic violence, parental imprisonment, emotional abuse, physical abuse, emotional neglect, or sexual abuse. Why are you using this specific questionnaire to assess the trauma history of these patients? Is there maybe other ways that you can assess this history? That's a great question. So we look specifically at the ACEs because It is the most widely popularized measurement of trauma in clinical settings. And because it's proven effective for so long, the 10 ACEs detailed on the questionnaire are the most common traumatic experiences that children are exposed to. And that's why we use it for measurement. It sounds like a regularly established questionnaire that can be used for these types of studies. You had mentioned 10 different categories. Are you focusing on one in particular or all of them at once? And what's the advantage of doing one versus the other? So the reason that we're using the Adverse Childhood Experiences Questionnaire to measure trauma is because it captures a breadth of traumatic experiences and well represents exposure to a variety of different childhood traumas. However, I will say that it doesn't touch on bullying or internet harassment of any form. It does a pretty good job of thoroughly collecting a detailed history of patients' trauma. I also, at this point, should probably clarify, we did not 
administer the Adverse Childhood Experience Questionnaire as a self-report measure. It can be administered as a self-report measure. However, we're studying in total 52 patients who've been engaged in a treatment program specific to clinical high risk for psychosis at the University of New Mexico called CONNECT. And patients were not assessed for their history of trauma at baseline enrollment. So what we've done is we've identified keywords corresponding to each item of the ACEs and gone back through each single clinical note in patients' electronic medical records to gather a detailed history of their trauma. So this was a researcher-quantified measure of trauma from clinician reports of history of trauma. So you're looking at these reports and using the questionnaire to determine and quantify the trauma history that these individuals have had. Based on the data that you were able to collect, are you able to make predictions on the likelihood that a person will develop psychosis based on the trauma history that they have? Unfortunately, because there is no control for this study, we cannot make any predictions likelihood of developing psychosis, specifically because we're only studying patients who are already at clinical high risk for psychosis. Because our sample size is so small, it's only 52 subjects, we can't really explore the likelihood that a patient will convert or not because luckily, and on the negative side, a very small proportion of patients actually go on to later convert to psychosis. That's about only 10 to 20% of subjects. However, that, that should be zero. Nonetheless, we can identify risk factors for trauma exposure in our treatment population of patients at clinical high risk for psychosis. What do you mean by conversion of a person entering psychosis? Is there a line in between that? There isn't a line at all. It's all on a spectrum, to be completely realistic with you, but that's how all mental health diagnoses are. However, I can provide some examples. So just an example. And before the example, a brief overview. Clinical high risk for psychosis is individuals who are experiencing hallucinations and delusions However, they can recognize that they're hallucinations and delusions still. Whereas when somebody has converted to psychosis or reached psychosis, they are disconnected from reality and they believe that the hallucinations and delusions that they're experiencing are real. So I'll give a delusion example and then a hallucination example. Delusion example. Somebody at clinical high risk could believe that they're, you know, phenomenal at basketball and that they're going to get drafted into the NBA someday, but recognize that they're cocky and just have a grandiose view of themselves. However, that would not be the only criteria that makes somebody at clinical high risk. Whereas somebody who's reached psychosis, you know, they could be an average basketball player and they could just up and move to Chicago because they believe that the Chicago Bulls need them on their team and they are going to be undoubtedly drafted. Then I'll give a hallucination example. Somebody at clinical high risk for psychosis would hear voices talking to them and recognize that they are hallucinations and be terrified that they're hearing things. However, they know it's not real. 
somebody who's reached psychosis could hear voices speaking to them, telling them to do things, and they believe that those are real people or something else that they need to follow the orders of. This work is all very interesting, but we didn't really talk about why it's important or what motivates the study of this kind in the first place. Why psychosis? Psychosis, believe it or not, is ranked by the World Health Organization as the third most disabling condition that an individual can experience, and that's following dementia and quadriplegia. So clearly there's a high level of disability associated with psychosis. The reason that a diagnosis of clinical high risk for psychosis exists is to prevent individuals from reaching a full break from reality that is associated with psychosis. Traditionally, individuals at psychosis are very hard to treat because they have a hard time building trusting relationships with clinicians because, you know, the clinician can't believe everything they say. And on the other side, they can tell that the clinician is skeptical and doesn't believe everything they're experiencing because it it isn't all real. And so because of this, clinical high risk for psychosis was developed as a diagnosis to prevent individuals from reaching a psychotic break from reality because duration of untreated psychosis and or untreated psychotic symptoms is a predictor for outcomes. You know, the longer individuals have experienced this break from reality for, the further gone they are in a way. And after an individual has experienced psychosis for long enough, treatment just becomes more and more challenging. For my general educational history, I'm aware that there are different drugs that people can use for treatments for schizophrenia. However, I'm not sure if there are other methods that could be used for treatment. Could you give us some examples of methods that are used to treat psychosis? For sure. So CONNECT, the program at the University of New Mexico that focuses on treating individuals for clinical high risk for psychosis, is something called a coordinated specialty care model with patients receiving treatment from psychiatrists who are doctors that can prescribe medicine, therapists, peer support workers who have had psychosis and recovered, and then as well, community support workers who are essentially occupational therapists and other positions that can help these patients with just daily activities that are challenging because of the disability associated with their mental illness, Elements of the program are psychotherapy, pharmacotherapy, psychoeducation, and pharmacotherapy means, you know, prescription of different drugs, but clinical high-risk programs are focused on low-dose pharmacotherapy and prescription, specifically because you don't want to prescribe a patient antipsychotics unless you need to, because it provides a great deal of relief of the mental symptoms associated with psychosis. However, there are a ton of physical side effects with a large proportion of people who receive treatment for psychosis experiencing something called cardiometabolic syndrome that is a byproduct of a rapid onset obesity that can often occur from taking these drugs. So 
generally this program, a lot of subjects have been prescribed antipsychotics, but they try to stay away from it unless it's a necessary measure. It's great that there's these different treatments that exist out there and that they're continuing to advance these days in the future. Even though you're an MSU student, you were able to do this research over at the University of New Mexico. Could you tell us a little bit more about your experience and what you really enjoyed about it? I'll say that before this summer, I never had the opportunity to do clinical research. You know, I've always wanted to research mental health because of the severe but almost severe disability that can be associated with different mental illnesses, but near invisibility of many mental illnesses. And so I just applied to a ton of different programs and got accepted at a program in New Mexico with the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences here. I work under a psychiatric epidemiologist and it's incredibly fascinating. I mean, I write code all day, I read all day, I write all day, but it's very easy to find motivation for the work I do. Well, Sam, I'm really happy that you were able to get into this program and do this amazing research. Thank you so much for talking to us today about this amazing study topic.